Well, good evening. It is good to be with you all again. Welcome to spring. Spring is one of my personal favorite seasons. I love to see nature resurrect and the hot weather to come back. I always forget about the allergies, though. It always surprises me. My eyes itch. I can't figure out what's going on for a couple of weeks, and, and then I remember it's the spring allergies. I think in glory, in the new earth, it'll probably always be spring, but no allergies. We look forward to that day. So a few years ago, I think it was actually Brother Jim over there, he gave me a book titled Baptist Distinctives. Now, it was an interesting book, and it describes several unique characteristics of the Baptist church. And we're all Baptists. We're not ashamed to put in our name, as so many other churches are, and over Baptist church. And so I was very curious of what were the distinctives going to be found in this book. And it had five distinctives. The first was the Bible is the final authority of all matters, faith, and practice. The second, the proper subjects of baptism is only believers. The third, we believe in regenerate membership. The fourth is the priesthood of all believers. And the last was congregational church membership. Now, overall, this book was quite good, though I have a few critiques of this book. One is some of the items even listed under these first five items are truly not unique to being Baptist. They're really just more evangelical or Protestant in nature. I think there's a little bit of grumpy or cranky Baptist uh, going on there when saying only the Baptists hold to the Bible as the final authority to faith and practice. Certainly, what he was getting at is we're the only ones who apply it to baptism, but of course they think that they are as well. But that was a small thing. That was a small critique I had against the book. My bigger critique was I was shocked that a book called Baptist Distinctives would leave out one of the most important Baptist distinctives. Now, what would that be? Well, Baptists obviously are named after our practice of baptism. But the other main distinctives of the Baptist, I would argue, is our delicious and wonderful potlucks. Without that, I certainly would wonder if I would be a Baptist. It's a very good possibility I would find another denomination. In fact, one of the first questions I have when going to a new church is, when is your next potluck dinner? And if it's not within 30 days, or if I'm feeling very generous, if it's not within 90 days, I'm out of there. There's no way I'm coming back with a church that doesn't have potluck dinners. They're not really Baptist at all. Now, all jokes aside there, Here's the real question is, is there any biblical basis for the famous, or maybe, if you want to diet, infamous Baptist potluck dinners? I think there are. So with that in mind, please open your Bibles to Jude, Jude chapter 1, and we're going to be primarily focusing in on verses 12 and 13, but for context, we'll go all the way back up to verse 8. Jude chapter 1, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished 
in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this, these couple verses here, specifically verses 12 and 13, can be broken down in, in many ways. Notice first that there are several descriptions for, to be precise, uh, descriptions or analogies taken from nature. Hidden reefs reside in the sea. Waterless clouds are in the sky. Fruitless trees are on the ground and watering, wandering stars reside in space. Another way we can divide these two verses is that verse 12 and 13a describe the wicked. That's who they are. And verse 13b describe their destiny. Where will they end up? Or we can look at verse 12 and say this describes what they lack, fruitfulness. And verse 13 describes what they produce, shame. So there are many different ways of breaking up this passage, but what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the passage piece by piece. The first thing that we encounter is that they are hidden reefs. Reefs. Uh, If you have the ESV, NSAB, or NET, you'll have something like that, hidden reefs some rocks in the sea. But if you have a KJV, NKJV, NSRV, or NIV, you'll notice that it says blemishes or spots. Now, when I saw this, I immediately went to the textual uh, manuscripts and to see the variations, and to my surprise, there was no variation in this text. This is actually a translational issue, which is really quite shocking. Almost all the time when you see variation between these translations, you'll find that there's some kind of manuscript difference, there's some kind of letter here, letter there that changes the possible meaning, but not in this case. Uh, What's going on here is that there's a very rare Greek word here um, that is very similar to another word found in 2 Peter 2, verse 13. 2 Peter is a parallel passage to this, and in this very section it says in 2 Peter 2.13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, Reveling in their deception while they feast with you. Both passages are concerned with feast. Both passages are concerned with these ungodly people among you in the feast. And so the word they are translated blemishes is only one letter different than the word translated here, potentially reefs or blemishes. And by the 4th century, this became kind of an alternate spelling or that word itself also could be used for blemishes. So there's a debate of whether or not this refers to a blemish or a reef. Now, it seems most modern translations go with reefs, and I, I think that is uh, probably better, but just in case, let's think about it if it was referring to blots or spots. Now, uh, what is that? Well, a spot, you could think about having a, a white dress. You can think about, let's go to a wedding. Let's go to a woman in her great wedding day, and she's the only one who's supposed to be wearing white. Don't wear white. She's wearing white. And imagine she has a big spill stain all over the dress. It's ruined. This is not a good day. This is horrible. Well, that's what these people are to our love feast. It's supposed to be beautiful, white, pure, and holy, and yet they're the big coffee stain all over the beautiful wedding dress. 
Or back to the wedding, you want to look your best. And sadly, the beautiful, wonderful, glorious bride, instead of looking her best, is, has a blemish because of stress or whatever. Not good. Not something that you want. That is what these wicked people are in the love feast. They shouldn't be there. They should be rooted out. They should be removed. They ruin something that's otherwise beautiful, spotless, and glorious. More likely, though, the translation is, in fact, hidden rocks. The word hidden is not actually there in the original Greek. It's just the idea is that there are rocks that are in the ground. You sailors may understand this more than I do. That if you get too close, you'll be destroyed. And, in fact, your ship will be shipwrecked. These are things that you have to be very careful. You cannot see them, but if you foolishly navigate over them, not knowing that they're there, you'll end up shipwrecked. And we have this warning of people who have shipwrecked their faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. The, the picture here is of our faith, of our, of our religion, of our Christianity, of being a boat. And we're on this traveling journey. We're going to the celestial city. Right? This is Pilgrim's Progress on the Sea. But you have to be careful because if you hit the rocks, you'll be shipwrecked and you'll die out there in the sea. You won't make it to the celestial city. So we have to be careful not to become shipwrecked. And one of the ways that we are careful not to become shipwrecked is realizing that we have a ship that cannot sail on rocks. We have to be careful about these things. These people are dangerous. Why are they so dangerous? Well, uh, one reason is because the Scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It says this in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. There's a massive contrast between the people of God and the wicked. So the first way that they are uh, dangerous, that they are rocks, that they can shipwreck our faith is just by simply being unbelievers. They're a, unbelievers are, in fact, dangerous. They're dangerous to our soul. That's why Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is, blessed is the man who does not associate himself too closely with the wicked, to hear their advice, to imitate their ways, and to join them in their scoffing of the people of God. They are dangerous. Now, we have to live with them. We have to stay around them, but that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. We all live with fire. We have multiple appliances in our house that have fire. But hopefully, when we're around the fire, we're cautious. It's not a time to be playing a bunch of games. It is a time to be serious when there is fire around because we know that it's dangerous. Well, these people are particularly dangerous because not only unbelievers, not only fire, but they're hidden, hidden fire. We don't even realize that there's a fire over there. We're caught off guard. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, it describes those people as they have crept in unnoticed. They're particularly dangerous because they're wolves in sheep's, cl- in sheep's clothing, that they betray us with the kiss of Judas and they mislead us with Absalom's lies. They're dangerous because we let our guard down. Hopefully, as Christians, when we're around unbelievers, we expect that we're drinking from seawater. So we're not expecting a lot of goodness there. We have our guard up. 
But when we're with believers and we think we're getting godly advice, our guard is down. And again, that's why these people are dangerous and we need to recognize them as hidden reefs at the love feast. They're dangerous. Have to keep our guard up. Now, the second thing we're going to turn our attention to is this love feast. Notice, they're hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Now, the question is, what are these love feasts? Well, one thing that helps us is just the word itself. In some way, they're feasts. In some way, they're associated with love. They're marked by love. What kind of love? Love for God and love for the brotherhood. Love for fellow believers. We spend time eating with one another and having these fellowship meals where we build each other up. Open it differently. These are the Baptist potlucks that I initiated this sermon with. In some ways, I'm kidding, but in other ways, I'm not, in fact. The ancient church practiced these love feasts, which were today essentially potlucks, even how they provided for the meal. How do we provide for potlucks? Not one person is not responsible for feeding everyone to become broke very quickly. But rather, everyone contributes, everyone brings a meal, and we all share and have this communal meal. And that's actually the way that they did it in the early church. We see a few examples of this in the Bible. In Acts 2.46, it says of the early church, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. They did something in the temple. They also did something in their home, namely breaking of the bread in their home. They received their food. This was not just token food, but real food that they were eating to sustain themselves day by day. They did this as a community. We see the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 21. There it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, that is, come together as a church, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now think about this for me, with me for a second. How could one go away hungry? Well, they went away hungry because they came in with an empty stomach, right? If this was just a token meal, why would you come to the Lord's Supper with an empty stomach? And why would you expect to be satisfied on the Lord's Supper? It's a tiny token. You're not going to get full off that. The same thing, these people are drunk. We shouldn't imagine that they're stealing the whole wine and back, back there and drinking all the wine. That's not what's going on. This was a real, full-on meal. And the abuse that was going on is people would basically start the potluck without everyone else having time to get there. They weren't going to wait around. It was their time to party. The rich people, most likely, would come in, have all the food, have all the wine, and they would eat until they're fully satisfied and drunk. And the poor people would come in who were working all day, and they come in, there was nothing left. So they were disgracing the Lord's Supper. Their sagape meal became abusive and was favoring the rich and completely shaming the poor. And, and in fact, these meals were designed to mostly bless the poor. And actually, if you look at the early church, and we're going to look at some of these examples, that you'll see that they would actually uh, recommend not eating too much, maybe it was because of the abuse of 1 Corinthians, so that they could actually bless somebody with leftovers. They keep them leftovers over so they would let someone go home with those leftovers. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time, people. That's awesome. We still do that. 
Right? Don't eat all the food so somebody can come home and say, yes, I got all this extra food. That, that's what the early church has been doing, and, and we still do that today. So one commentator described uh, these love feasts or these Baptist potlucks in this way. It says they were held in the evening at conventional time where real meals intended to satisfy hunger and in the early period, in some places at any rate, were closely linked to the Lord's Supper. See 1 Corinthians, the very passage we just read, uh, 11, 17-34. The primary background of these meals seemed to be the meals that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels? Jesus is always eating. He just loves to eat. In fact, people called him a drunkard and a, uh, a glutton. He was always eating. He was always eating with his disciples. And that seems to be the background that Jesus was sitting there and, and, and so much happened around the table. In fact, what's really interesting is even when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't stop eating. Think, just think back to your own mind as you think back to the Bible. How many resurrection appearances involve food? It was just a good thing to do. It was a fellowship meal and it seems as if that this practice of love feast continued on even when Jesus went to heaven. The disciples continued to feast among each other, recognizing that Jesus was there in spirit and in truth. Um, let's look at some examples of the early church to help us to understand a little bit more about what these love feasts were and what they looked like. Ignatius says that the love feast must be presided over by a bishop along with baptism. And that's really interesting. So in order to have one of these love feasts, you had to have a bishop there. Just like you couldn't have a legitimate baptism with just you. Right? Just You can't just baptize your kid in your pool. Uh, so too, you couldn't just have a love feast without a bishop. This shows us that just going with a few friends to five guys was not considered a love feast. It might be a feast, but it's not a love feast. Okay? This was an actual official thing, a religious service going on with the church. It wasn't just having a good time and eating food. It's an official church function. Tertullian describes the feast, and he gives us really great, uh, he really helps us to understand what these feasts look like. He says that the feast was in a modest supper room, and it was categorized by love. And I'm going to quote him. Here's exactly what he says. He says, the feast is an act of religious service. It, permit, it permits no vileness or immodesty. The participants, before reclining, taste first the prayer to God. So it's a religious service, and the first thing they do is pray to God. He says, they eat as much as it satisfies the craving of hunger, and drunk as much as it befits the chase. They say it is enough as those who remember that even during the night they have to worship God. They talk as those who know that the Lord is one of their auditors. So this wasn't just a feast and they left and they went partying and acting crazy. They would eat and afterwards they would continue to worship God. And again, as I said, they recognized that the Lord was in their midst feasting with them. They were communing with God, with Jesus. After manual ablation, which just means washing, after they washed their hands, they were clean Baptists, they cleaned up, and then the bringing in of the lights, they brought the lights in, each is asked to stand forth and sing, as he can, a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing, a proof of the measure of our drinking. As the feast commenced with prayer, so with prayer it closed. We go from it, not like troops of mischief-doers or a band of vagabonds, but as care for our modesty and chastity as if we had been at a school of virtue rather than a banquet. He's describing a religious service. Religious service where they eat, they begin with prayer, 
afterwards they pray. Well, actually, they conclude it with prayer. And in between that, they do this hymn saying. Does this sound familiar at all? They even describe children participating in this, where they do this hymn sing along and, and, uh, and then conclude the service in prayer. You know, this sounds extremely familiar. It sounds like something we all have done. Only difference is we usually, well, before I get ahead of myself, the question is, where is the Lord's Supper involved in this? Is it happening at the same time of the Lord's Feast? Is it before or is it after? Well, he doesn't mention, he doesn't mention anything about uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. So we have, and I might mispronounce this, Hippolytus of Rome, asked Neil for the correct pronunciation there, he was a church father in, in uh, A.D. 215, and he tells us what is the relationship between the Lord's Supper and the agape meal, or the love feast. And he says this, After they eat the meal, that's the agape feast, they shall get up and pray, and the children shall sing songs along with the virgins. And afterward, the deacon holding the mixed cup of oblation shall sing a psalm from among those in which is written, Alleluia. Then if the elder orders it, more from the same psalms. After this, the bishop shall offer the cup, saying, one of those psalms appropriate to the cup, all of which should include Alleluia. When the psalm is completed, he shall bless the cup and give of the pieces of the bread to all the faithful ones. So this is 215. This is 1,800 years ago. That's what's going on here. So what we know from, at least in his day, is they would have the love feast, and then after the love feast, they would go into the Lord's Supper, which tells us that the love feast wasn't the Lord's Supper, but it was very closely associated with the Lord's Supper. Now, again, this sounds extremely familiar because all we have done is oftentimes just reverse it a little bit, right? This isn't necessary. This is just their liturgy. We don't have to follow it exactly, but this looks very familiar, and it should be very encouraging to you. But this is actually very familiar practice. Often we'll have a service, and then we conclude with the Lord's Supper, which is the token meal, and then afterwards we'll have the Baptist potluck, begin with prayer, and afterwards we sing our hymns, and then we go home. Very similar to the early church. And this is really quite great. This is a great practice that we should realize is actually modeled for us in the Word of God and something that we should continue doing. It is quite a blessing. I remember when I attended uh, my first Reformed Baptist church, I had a very good experience. I went there, and it happened to be the agape meal was that Sunday. So I went in there, and we worshiped. We had the Lord's Supper, very similar to how we do it here. And afterward, we had our agape feast, and I got to meet people and fellowship and talk and enjoy their company. It was a really wonderful time. In fact, it was basically like Thanksgiving. It's our version of Thanksgiving, or Put it differently, Thanksgiving is the secular version of the agape meal. Now, how many people love Thanksgiving? Hopefully, most of you. And that's what the Lord gives us with these agape meals. In fact, it's interesting. I, I wonder if this, I wonder if the original Thanksgiving, in fact, was an agape meal that has now passed along. And now what we have as Thanksgiving is the uh, remnants of what that original agape meal is. Whatever the case is, the point I'm trying to make here is that there's a biblical practice that's preserved in the scriptures and attested in the early church of having these agape meals. And if we discard this practice, we do it to our own peril. God knows better than we do. God gave us this. He preserved these words in our scriptures so that we would know about this meal and that we would not feel shame about it, but we would delight in this thing. And so I encourage us to continue to do this meal and enjoy it because it is a gift from God. So that's what's going on here. They are 
These people, though, unfortunately, are hidden reefs, hidden rocks. They're dangers at the love feast. And it describes them, our passage continues and says, they feast with you without fear. They're feasting. They're part of the celebration, which is, it doesn't mean that unbelievers can't be part of the celebration, but these people are pretending to be believers. They're pretending to have fellowship with you when, in fact, they are wolves waiting to devour you. And it describes them as doing this without fear. They join the feast without fear, without love. They do not fear God, which is the mark of the unbeliever. In Romans chapter 3, it describes the unbeliever as having mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is the unbeliever? It is the person who does not fear God. And that's these people. They feast with you without fear. Now, this is the opposite with the godly. If these people are fearless people, fearless of God, that is, fear, fearlessness, they have no fear of his punishments or displeasing him, we, the godly, the righteous, should be marked by the exact opposite. That is, we should be fearful of the Lord. That's right, fearful of God. Now, the right kind of fear, of course, but still, nonetheless, fear. Proverbs 9.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. We start there. We start with the fear of the Lord. It's a healthy thing. And guess what? We don't leave fear. It's not like we start there and we chuck fear out and it's gone forever. No. In fact, in Jeremiah 32, the promise of the coming new covenant, this is what the Lord says. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will that I will not turn away from doing good from them, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. The fear of the Lord brings you to the Lord, and the fear of the Lord keeps you in the Lord. And that is why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation in what? Fear and trembling. We don't leave the fear of the Lord. Everything we do is always with reverence to God and a fear of displeasing him as his children and a fear of the fires of hell and the glories of heaven. Some people always want to do one or the other. Just preach the glories of heaven. That's the carrot. That's good. But we also need to stick the fires of hell. There are so many warnings in the Bible, and therefore are good, because we are a wayward people, and we go astray, and we need the rod of chastening. We need to see the fires of hell to remember that this is not the path that we want to go on, and we need to continue to follow the Lord. So these people... Do not fear. They don't fear being a hypocrite. They don't fear pretending. They don't fear partaking of this holy meal with the people of God, even though that they are unbelievers. The other thing might be going on here is they just might be just selfish people. They might actually be like the first Corinthian people that, that ate all the food up. They might actually just be utterly shameless and just gobbled it all down as well. And they had no fear of the reproach of man or the reproach of God, and that is a horrible thing. So let's make sure that we continue in the fear of the Lord and not be people who can be described as fearless in this way. The next description that we see of these individuals is that they're shepherds feeding themselves. They're people who only serve themselves. Now, a few possibilities for what this means. One is they could be rebels, right? That we all have the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and that we have under shepherds, the elders. 
And these people shepherd themselves. They say, I'm going to do what I want. That's the first possible meaning of this. Alternatively, they could be, they could be selfish. They could be, again, eating all the food up. They could be only worrying about themselves and not worrying about anyone else. They don't have a shepherd's heart. They're not concerned about those who are poor and those who are hungry and those who are being left out by their selfishness. And the last possibility is that it describes them as false teachers, and again, who are selfish. That they are shepherds, in fact, but they are not real shepherds at all. Instead of shepherding the sheep, they only care about themselves. They're only people who try to use other people for their own advantage. Now, the ESV reading seems to go with the third, that they are false teachers who are false shepherds. And I think that is probably right. This, uh, their false ways expresses themselves at the love feast by uh, excessive eating, by over-drinking, and uh, all the other things that could possibly go along with that. Maybe when they were drunk, they spoke harsh words to people. Maybe they actually physically hurt people. Maybe they were sexually immoral. All of these various things. But all of that was just really a manifestation of their entire shepherding career. Their whole shepherding career was marked by selfishness, by what can I get from somebody else. Have you ever been kind to somebody just because you thought, if I'm kind to somebody, they'll probably like me. And if they like me, it'll go better for me. Now, some of that might not be too unhealthy, but some of that can get really twisted really fast, where all of a sudden you start doing things and saying things really in just kind of a cost-benefit calculation. If I say this and do this, it will go well for me. It's a very selfish perspective. And that's not the way we should live. We shouldn't live just me, 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 me. In fact, there was a, a book that I once saw. It called, it was, I think it was from Dr. Phil. I'm not sure if any good book comes from him. But anyways, the book was called How to Be Super Selfish. That's what it was basically what it was saying. It was saying, be kind to others because it goes better for you to do that. And there's a level of truth to that, but is that really the, the guiding motivation of all your kindness? Is that really the only reason you hang out and do anything for anyone is to say, how will this ultimately benefit me? If that's the case, there's something wrong there. And that's not the way that we should be. We should be not just shepherds shepherding ourselves, but we should be looking out for our brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. In Philippians chapter 2, this is the way that it should be in contrast to these shepherds who shepherd only themselves. It says in Philippians 2, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is that super selfish to you? Is it just saying, you know, just be kind to other people because it just goes well with you if that's the way you do it? No. No. In fact, later on, describes Jesus Christ. What did he have to gain? Nothing. He laid down his life for our sake, for our blessing, to bless us. Yes, he's glorified in that, but he did it as a selfless act. And that's why Paul later points to him and says, have that same mind as Christ did, that mind of humility. So let's not be selfish people, but rather uh, humble and people who give to others and care about others. As we come to a close here in this message, let us think about the contrast between these shepherds who only shepherd themselves, these fleecers of God's flock. And there's a whole chapter, if you're interested, in Ezekiel chapter 34, where Ezekiel rails 
on, and really God, rails on the prophets of Israel and the shepherds of Israel because they are only shepherding themselves. And in, at the end of it, it says, you're no shepherd at all. All of my sheep have gone astray and been eaten up and been destroyed. And all you've done is feed yourself. You got wool, you got food, and you're slaughtering the fat ones, but you did nothing to care for the weak. You did nothing for these people. They are shepherdless. And that's what the world, in the end, has done for us, or we have done for ourselves. We are shepherdless. They have not taken care of us in the end. And that is why we have the great news that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And he says that in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ, the good shepherd, laid his life down for us. And he contrasts that in John chapter 10 with all those who came before him and describes them as thieves and robbers. All they did was trying to get with them. They just wanted their own stuff. That's all. They only cared for themselves. And he says, here's the test. If you know whether you're a good shepherd or just a thief and a robber, a pretender. He says this in verse 12. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them and he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The true test is what do you do when there's danger around? Right? What Christ did was he laid his life down. What the false shepherds did is they ran and they bailed. Now, we're not Christ. Only Christ is Christ. However, we are too called to be caring people for others. Some of you are actually elders, but some of you are just other Christians who are to be your brother's keeper. And how do you know if you're just a hired hand, a hireling, or rather one who imitates the great shepherd? What do you do when it hurts? What do you do when there's nothing in it for you? This kind of reminds me of what Jesus says when he says, when you have a feast, invite the poor, the lame, the outcast. They cannot repay you, but your Father in heaven will repay you. What do you do when it hurts you? When someone asks for your time or asks you to do something and it benefits you nothing, then will you be like Christ who lays down his life for the sheep, at least metaphorically, or you just abandon them? There's nothing for me. I'm out of here. I'm only concerned about myself. There's a way of Christ and the way of the world. And let us follow Christ as the good shepherd instead of these false prophets, these cloudless, waterless clouds that are swept along by the wind, these fruitless trees of late autumn twice dead and uprooted. I'll talk about more of that next time. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the example of Christ, the good shepherd, who is a shepherd of the sheep. We thank you, Lord, that you, why we were sheep that went astray. We're not innocent sheep. We ourselves might have been wolves in sheep's clothing for all, for all that matters. Lord, but you laid down your life for the sheep. You searched us out. You took us back. You rescued us. Please, Lord, help us to not be these shepherds who shepherd themselves, who only care about themselves, who are selfish in every way, but we would love each other, esteeming each other as better than ourselves, and that we could serve you by serving one another. Lord, we thank you for this glorious passage that shows us that uh, the Baptist uh, potluck is actually quite biblical and uh, been designed by you for our edification and our fellowship, Lord. I thank you uh, for that. I thank you for all the good times that myself and I'm sure so many others have at these fellowship meals. And Lord, I ask that they would continue and, uh, and your people, Lord, we would never forget about the means of grace that you have provided for us for our sustainment, our fellowship, and our joy. Praise in Jesus' name.